Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Baptism of Jesus, an Acute Embarrassment. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 9th, 2011. After living in total obscurity his entire life, in his late 20s, Jesus left his family in Nazareth and joined the movement of his eccentric cousin John. Jesus might have even submitted himself to John as a disciple to a mentor. Some scholars think that John was part of the apocalyptic Jewish sect of Essenes who opposed the temple in Jerusalem. Well, at least this much is clear. John the Baptist was a prophet of radical descent, so much so that his detractors said that he had a demon, Luke 7.33. Whereas John's father had been part of the religious establishment as a priest in the Jerusalem temple, John fled the comforts and the corruptions of the city for the loneliness of the desert. There he dressed in animal skins, ate insects and wild honey, preached and baptized. Living on the margins of society, both literally and figuratively, he preached what Mark 1.4 calls a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Marcus Borg characterizes John's message as an announcement of both indictment and invitation. In contrary to what you might have expected from such an ascetic man with an austere message, the Gospels say that people flock to John. Even twenty years later in far away Ephesus, a thousand miles by land or six hundred miles by sea, people submitted to the baptism of John. Acts chapter 19.3 John's preaching in the Judean desert and baptizing in the Jordan River confronted both the religious and the political powers of his day. About six months after John emerged from the desert like some scraggly lunatic and baptized Jesus, he was beheaded at the whim of Herod the Tetrarch who at a dinner party capitulated to the sadistic demand of his girlfriend's daughter. John was the forerunner of Jesus, but he was also a fourth teller to Herod, having rebuked Herod for sleeping with his brother's wife. But, as with many perverse politicians, Herod had his way with him who had spoken truth to power, and so John was murdered. The temple establishment in Jerusalem, which exercised a gatekeeper monopoly on mediating God's grace to people, didn't like John preaching from the periphery either. John castigated these religious authorities as a brood of vipers. The religious experts, said Jesus, had spurned God's call to baptismal repentance, and in so doing they had, quote, rejected God's purpose for themselves. Luke 7.30 the prophetic word of God from John the Baptist then did not originate with the state powers or the religious establishment, nor did it find a receptive audience with them. Instead of cooperation, accommodation, or resignation, John challenged these religious and political powers with his anti-established message of protest and renewal. By joining John the Baptizer's fringe movement, Jesus did likewise. 
And then comes a shock. Jesus himself asked to be baptized by John. With some important stylistic differences, all four Gospels tell the story of Jesus' baptism by John. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Matthew three thirteen to 17 After his radical rupture with his family and conventional society by identifying with the desert troublemaker, to the point of submitting to his baptism, Jesus' own family tried to apprehend him. The village of Nazareth tried to kill him as a deranged crackpot. Why did Jesus the Greater submit to baptism for the forgiveness of sins by John the Lesser? Did he need to repent of his own sins? The earliest witnesses of his baptism ask this question because in Matthew's Gospel, John the Baptizer tries to prevent Jesus. Why do you come to me? I need to be baptized by you. In other words, John insists that Jesus was not getting baptized for his own sins. John Dominic Crossan even argues that there was what he calls an acute embarrassment about Jesus' baptism on the part of the Gospel writers. Even a hundred years after the event, Jesus' baptism made some Christians feel uneasy. In the non-canonical Gospel of the Hebrews, around the year 80 to 150 A.D., Jesus denies that he needs to repent. He seems to get baptized to please his mother. Listen to the Gospel of the Hebrews. The mother of the Lord and his brothers said to him, John the Baptist baptizes for the forgiveness of sins. Let us go and be baptized by him. But Jesus said, In what way have I sinned that I should go and be baptized by him? Unless perhaps what I have just said is a sin of ignorance. Others have suggested that Jesus set an example for us, that just as he was baptized, we too should be baptized. We get some clues to the reason for Jesus' baptism if we backtrack to the beginning of Matthew. On page 1 of his Gospel, Matthew lists 42 men in Jesus' genealogy, then four women with unsavory pasts. Tamar was widowed twice, then became a victim of incest, when her father-in-law Judah abused her as a prostitute. Rahab was a foreigner and a whore who protected the Hebrew spies by lying. Ruth was a foreigner and a widow, while Bathsheba was the object of David's adulterous passion and murderous cover-up. These four women were forebears of Jesus. And then on page 2, Matthew describes the birth of Jesus through five disturbing dreams. He pits Herod, the king of the Jews, against Jesus, the king of the Jews. The pagan magi worship Jesus, whereat Herod tries to kill Jesus by slaughtering the baby boys of Bethlehem. Jesus escapes to Egypt, the sworn and symbolic enemy of Israel, and finds refuge there. 
Jesus' baptism inaugurated his public ministry by identifying with the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem. He allied himself with the faults and the failures, the pains and problems of all the broken people who had flocked to the Jordan River. By wading into the waters with them, he took his place beside us and among us. Not long into his public mission, the sanctimonious religious leaders derided Jesus as a friend of gluttons and sinners. They were right. <clears throat> with his baptism, Jesus openly and decisively stands with me in my fears and anxieties. He intentionally took sides with people in their neediness and declared that God was biased in their favor. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. God's abundant mercy, Jesus declared, is available directly and immediately to every person it's not the private preserve doled out by the temple establishment in Jerusalem. Jesus' baptismal solidarity with broken people was vid vividly confirmed by God's affirmation and empowerment. Still wet with water after his cousin had plunged him beneath the Jordan River, Jesus heard a voice and saw a vision. The declaration of God the Father that Jesus was his beloved Son, and the descent of God the Spirit in the form of a dove. The vision and the voice punctuated the baptismal event. They signaled the meaning, the message, and the mission of Jesus as he went public after 30 years of invisibility. That by the power of the Spirit, the Son of God embodied his Father's unconditional embrace of all people everywhere. And for further reflection, why do you think Jesus submitted himself to John's baptism? John Howard Yoder on John the Baptist once observed, To repent is not to feel bad, but to think differently. Or from the lectionary text for this week, Isaiah 42, verse 3. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And finally, considering the baptism of John, of Jesus, consider the functions of water to heal, cleanse, nourish, to quench our thirst. The Baptism of Jesus by his cousin John. For books this week, I review Herman Walk, The Language God Talks, on Science and Religion. New York, Little Brown Company, 2010, 183 pages. Fifty years ago, when the Jewish novelist Herman Walk, born 1915, when he was researching his book, The Winds of War, 1971, and War and Remembrance, 1978, he met with the famous Caltech physicist Richard Feynman to learn about the Manhattan Project and the atom bomb. 
Do you know calculus? Feynman asked the humanist walk. You had better learn it, said Feynman. It's the language God talks. Walk tried but never did learn calculus, but he later had two more conversations with Feynman at the Aspen Institute. Herman Walk has been ruminating about those conversations with Feynman ever since, and in particular about an off-the-cuff remark that Feynman made in a television interview which later became a famous soundbite to explore the relationship between science and religion. In that interview, Feynman expounded an agnostic or atheist outlook. He said, It doesn't seem to me that this fantastically marvelous universe, this tremendous range of time and space and different kinds of animals, and all the different planets, and all these atoms with all their motion and so on, all this complicated thing can merely be a stage so that God can watch human beings struggle for good and evil which is the view that religion has. The stage is too big for the drama. No, says Walk in this book, he amicably objects, the stage is not too big. He might not know calculus, but he insists that he knows God's other language from the Talmud. And he fondly recollects his upbringing as a Russian immigrant in the Bronx and studying the Torah with his grandfather once a week. Even today, Walk reads the Hebrew scriptures daily. Science, too, by the way, is part of our messy human drama of doubt, error, vanity, ignorance, ridicule, and politics. It depends upon faith and the opinions of elite authorities, which, which opinions often disagree about fundamental matters. It can build the atom bomb, but provide precious little moral or wisdom about its use or explain the magic of genetics, but not how to raise a teenager. Has the last 15 billion years really been such a vastly drawn-out, complex, purposeless nonsense, asks Walk? I'll venture, he says, that not even a solid savant like Steven Weinberg can believe that, not in his innermost soul. Art, human joy and sorrow, the mystery of human consciousness, all these hints don't prove anything, but nevertheless suggest that our human drama does indeed have an overall plot and an author. In his final pages, Walk offers an imaginary fourth conversation with Feynman, and then a coda of what exactly he himself believes. The author is Herman Walk, W-O-U-K, the Language God Talks on Science and Religion. For film this week, I review The Beaches of Agnes from 2008. <clears throat> the French photographer, artist, and filmmaker Agnes Varda, born 1928, wrote, directed, produced, starred in, and narrates this autobiographical documentary film. Varda describes herself as plenty, plump, and talkative at age 80. She begins with her childhood in Brussels, the third of five children born to a French mother and a Greek father, although her father never mentioned this. Although she mixes various media to tell her story, like old family photos, her own photography, clips from her films, and so on, 
Her story unfolds in a straightforward, chronological manner. When Varda took the plunge, as she recalls it, and moved from photography to film, her 1954 film, La Pointe Court, was hailed as part of the French New Wave movement. The Beaches of Agnes has won numerous awards at international film festivals. For Agnes Varda, looking back over her long life means more about her friendships than about the explanation of her craft. The film is in French with English subtitles. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a portion of Ode, Intimations of Immortality from Recollections of Early Childhood by William Wordsworth. Wordsworth was one of the greatest Romantic poets and lived from 1770 to 1850. Then sing, ye birds, sing, sing a joyous song, and let the young lambs bound as to the tabor's sound. We in thought will join your throng, ye that pipe and ye that play, ye that through your hearts today feel the gladness of the May. What, what though the radiance which was once so bright be now forever taken from my sight, though nothing can bring back the hour of splendor in the grass, of glory in the flower, we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind, in the primal sympathy which having been must ever be, in the soothing thoughts that spring out of human suffering, in the faith that looks through death, in years that bring the philosophic mind. William Wordsworth, Ode, Intimations of Immortality. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 9th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.